amazing time. We were refreshed. Um, we bonded. Uh, we literally walked miles uphill in the snow, um, barefoot, um, not barefoot. Uh, Scotty boy, Scotty boy was bareheaded, right? We had to get, we had to buy him a beanie. Uh, it was cold. His poor little head was getting chapped. Uh, sorry, man. I just give you a hard time. <laughs> it was a good time. It was a great time. Um, and, uh. Uh, of course, we're not used to the snow, right? I mean, that snow and ice, we're like, what is this? We live in Phoenix um, for a reason. Uh, so it took us like six hours to get from Denver to Colorado Springs um, because it was snowing. There was a wreck on the road. And uh, and we stopped for lunch at Chili's, you know. That that takes some time. Um, and and while, while we were there at, at Chili's, uh, I did what I almost always do at Chili's, which is order chips and salsa for an appetizer, right? And, and I realized in that moment that Chili's chips and salsa are the best chips and salsa ever. A bold claim, I know. Jen challenged me on this on the trip. It's a bold claim, I know. Um, why would I say that? Is it because they're served so piping hot and fresh? I mean, maybe, but other places do that too. Is it, is it because they have that, that perfect kind of thin and crispy texture? Like, well, there are some other really good textured chips out there. Um, no, is it the salsa? I mean, the salsa is really good too. I mean, I do love their salsa. It's a great consistency. Not too thin, not too thick. It's the salt, right? It came to me in a flash, and I'm not even kidding, because they're just perfectly salted. Now, some people might say over-salted, and that's fine. That's, that's you. Um, that's your problem. Um, I say that they're perfectly salted, and that is really what makes everything that I talked about before, the texture, the temperature, the salsa, so it makes it all come together. And I think... All of you know where I'm going with this, right? You know this metaphor and how it's used by Jesus. I mean, how many times have you heard a sermon on, uh, on salt and light, right? Well, guess what? You know, buckle up. Here's another one. Um, salt in the ancient world, right, you know probably, I hope, it was a key, as it is today, to bringing out the true flavors in the, the food. And it was also a preservative. We don't use it that much that way today. But it was also preservative so that food didn't go bad. So speaking to his disciples, verse 13, Jesus says uh, in Matthew chapter 5, which we just read, he says to his disciples, you are the salt of the earth. You are the salt of the earth. So I think you get it, right? Disciples of Jesus are meant to bring out the goodness in the world that is just so easily covered up and, and distorted by evil. Followers of Jesus preserve the truth about reality by teaching and preaching the gospel story. And, of course, that includes all the teachings of Jesus. And that's why he says, like, guys, you've got to be teaching what, I, what I'm telling you. Don't relax any of these commandments. We'll get more, more about that in a minute. But Jesus is showing us just the other side of that same coin of salt when he starts talking about light in verse 14. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. It's Matthew 5.14. And this is rich imagery, right? It's, it's the disciples of Jesus. It's the recipients of his teaching that live 
out that teaching uh, and it provides the rest of the world light to see. And of course, light to see is a, is a, is a necessity for the fullness of life itself. The, the idea of the city on a hill goes all the way back uh, to, to the idea of Jerusalem, which is the city where God's presence dwells and, and where the nations are supposed to be able to come and look and learn the ways of God. And Jesus says, actually, you are the city on a hill. That is beautiful, is it not? What a blessing. And yet, uh, before we become too self-congratulatory on our honored place as the church in the kingdom, we also must take seriously the possibility that although this is in fact our corporate vocation, Jesus said you're salt and light, it doesn't happen automatically. Okay? It doesn't happen automatically. We have to receive it willingly and then we have to live accordingly. And if we do not, the consequences are dire. Matthew 5 and 13, second half. If salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled other under people's feet. So in the same way, I mean, we can, we can certainly dim the light that we possess in Christ. Otherwise, why would Christ actually take care to command us to let our light shine before others in verse 15? Clearly, it's possible to put the metaphorical basket over the truth. Right? Over the, the hope and the good news that's been gifted to us in order to share the world. So, here's the question. How do we stay bright and salty, friends? How do we stay bright and salty? Now, um, this is where the, the, the sermon begins to get challenging, okay? And, and I just want to acknowledge that up front. Uh, I'm, I'm assuming that we're not always bright and salty. Okay, um, I'm assuming that you guys, like me, struggle with this from time to time. And, and that sometimes uh, we need help and we need to be reminded how to stay bright and salty so that we can live out that vocation. So, um, this isn't a, a personal thing against anybody in this room, but it is a, a challenge. How do we stay bright and salty? First of all, we have to remember that the gospel includes not only a pronouncement of the possibility of eternal life in the future. I mean, it's definitely that, but we, we too often stop there. It also includes this bold proclamation that Jesus is Lord even now. I think it's kind of easier to say, yes, Jesus came in the past and, and he's going to save us in the future. But when it really gets challenging for us is to say, but he's Lord now. He's Lord now. So we love Jesus as our Savior. Oh, we love him. And we start to thinking about what it means for him to be our Lord and our teacher. Oh, man, things start to get dicey, right? Um, yet, listen, if he's our Lord, then it's not only that what he's done that benefits us. But if he's really our Lord, then what he's taught is binding on us. So we have this responsibility to be faithful to it. If he's our teacher, our, our rabbi, 
Right? They were called in the ancient world. We'll talk about more about that in a minute too. Uh, then, then that means his way of, of being in the world must become our way of being in the world. See, it's so clear. We look at the disciples that were with Jesus. I mean, they literally followed him around. <laughs> That's what it meant to be a disciple. Jesus goes there, they go there. Jesus goes there, they go there. Right? They followed him from place to place. They literally left their former lives, their careers, uh, you know, on the seashore. They went on a trek with Jesus. Right? They left everything behind to, to spend time with him. That's so key. See, in the ancient world, I mean, somebody couldn't be your teacher if you didn't spend time with them. Right? Now we can just turn on a podcast, go to the internet. You don't have to spend time with your teachers. So we forget that sometimes. But they were, they were always with him. They were always with Jesus. And then also this idea of the rabbi, I mean, it's not just the, the going and listening and, and hanging out, but, but learning how to live it out. And so they would go and they would watch their rabbi. How is he living out his own teachings? And they would imitate that. Now, this is quite challenging to us, probably, I hope, because it moves us beyond these kind of simple do's and don'ts and rules and regulations. Pharisees, some of the Pharisees have gotten sidetracked on that stuff. When Jesus says, do not think I've come to abolish the law of the prophets, I've not come to abolish them, but fulfill them. What he means is that he has lived in a way and he is living in a way that fulfills every Old Testament law found in the Torah, right? It means his way of life is the way of life that, that Torah, which is the first five books of the Bible, were always meant to produce, okay? Although he lived in a way perfectly, and, and we don't, right? He lived in that way perfectly, we don't. Nevertheless, we're called as his disciples to follow his teachings and to follow in his footsteps so that we too can live in that way that fulfills everything that the law was meant to point to, was meant to produce in us, right? So, and I said that wrong, it's the Pentateuch, it's the first five books, uh, towards the law. Uh, okay, sorry, I got a little technical there. But hear this, brothers and sisters, those footsteps, and I'm going to pause because I want you to take this really seriously, that, that we're, to, we're to listen and follow Jesus, right? Following his footsteps. Hear this, those footsteps, how many of you guys, how many of you guys know that, uh, that, that little uh, picture, the sand, you know, and it's like the single set of footprints, and it's like, uh, you know, when there were when there was one set of footprints, that's when I carried you. Oh, that's so sweet. You know, for me, it's like that long trough is where you like drug me along. You know, what I, you know what I mean. Where are those footsteps going? Eternal life. I mean, yeah, ultimately. But where are they going first? Right to the cross. Every time. That is the culminating event that demonstrates for us the way of Jesus. The cross. So, I know you guys, we didn't read it today, but I think, looking out, most people in this room are going to be familiar with the Beatitudes, which comes right before this. Matthew chapter 5. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the persecuted. Now, who does that sound like? Jesus, maybe? Does it sound like the way of Jesus? 
And see, right after those pronouncements over the disciples, that's when he says, you are the salt of the earth. So we have to remember that this radical grace, I don't want to get away from that, it's radical grace, pure gospel message, the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Also, though, like it's a gift that we have this eternal life, but it also prompts a radical obedience to him. Radical grace, radical obedience. As we imitate him. And the reason it's radical is because we imitate him in weakness. We imitate him by walking to the cross. This is the key to staying bright and salty in a dim and often tasteless world. Right? As we follow Jesus, we imitate Jesus. And just like the disciples, when we follow him, we spend time with him, we know him. That's how we're going to know how to do this stuff. How to be pure in heart and peacemakers. How to move through persecution. What does Paul say about knowing Jesus? We're going to move now to the epistle passage for a few minutes. I decide to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom. Because, I mean, come on, that, that God would reveal Himself in a crucified criminal on a cross but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Now think about this with me. If Paul knew nothing among the church at Corinth except Christ crucified, then also, and track with me here, what was his demonstration of power? Do you think it was lots of miracles and stuff? I mean, I'm, I'm going to go out on a limb and say, I think that it was demonstrating the power of Christ crucified. The power of living in that way. And his own changed life. And sharing that with the church. And this requires the Holy Spirit to make sense. Right? We have to have the Holy Spirit to make sense of this because we couldn't believe it without his help. It's too out there. It's too crazy. It's too counterintuitive. The, the power and the glory of God is put on display on a cross? And Jesus also said, this is my moment of glory. A place of shame, torture, and defeat. And yet, that's the counterintuitive truth that illuminates the world and that brings out the flavor of real, abundant life. So we can sum up the message of the cross like this. It's not superior skills, intellect, money, Force that can deal with the results of humanity's sinful rebellion and selfishness. No. The only thing that can conquer death is the kind of love that loves even to death. This is something that's impossible for me and it's impossible for you apart from Christ. That's why we have to be with Him. That's why... That's why, you know, there is a lot of truth to that quaint little poem. He has to carry us through this in the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus, being both God and man, he was able to perfectly fulfill the law. We, we could never do it, but, but he did it, right? He was able to live out Torah, right? Perfectly exemplifying the character of God and perfectly living out humanity's vocation as salt and light. And because he was perfect, his self-sacrifice even all the way to death, loving the whole world, even as the world killed him, 
ended up being the antidote to death. And he rose from the dead in victory over death, which demonstrates for us that the destructive power of death as it exists in the world now has already begun to disappear. It's already begun to dissipate as a result of what Jesus has done. And eventually, that same power that rose Jesus from the dead, that same love will burn away everything that isn't love. And that is the way the world will be renewed. And you and I, too, will share fully in that resurrection life as a gift. And and not because of anything that we have done at all, but because of what Christ did on the cross and then us being incorporated into that work. So while we wait for the renewal of all things, because it hasn't... It hasn't been consummated yet, right? Um, God the Father has sent us the Holy Spirit, and Jesus has sent us the Holy Spirit to indwell us, to fill us with His presence, so that we can actually experience that power in so many ways, even now. And it's this guarantee of of that future promise. So if we will simply receive Him, the Holy Spirit, that is, we find ourselves united to Christ. And now, out of that, we're empowered, equipped, and energized by the Spirit to love as He loves. That is great news if you believe it. It's great news. But it doesn't... It it did and does come at a cost. Now, Jesus paid the ultimate cost, of course. But it comes at a cost to us as well. And I hope you have counted up the cost of discipleship. I find a lot of people have not. So I hope you have really thought about this and counted it up because believe me, right, um, the ultimate consequences of sin have been dealt with absolutely 100%. So we're going to get eternal life. We're going to get healed. We're going to live in harmony with one another and with God. But nevertheless, even for me and you, the cross is inescapable. Jesus said we have to take up our own cross and follow him. Death to self, in other words, is a non-negotiable when we purpose to be a disciple of our rabbi Jesus. So I hope you've counted up the cost. But I also hope that you have considered the joy of truly knowing Jesus. So go back to the Beatitudes for just a second. Now I think there's so many ways of interpreting the Beatitudes. Over time, I think I'm coming to a place of seeing these as pronouncements of grace. That as a disciple, yes, you will mourn. Like there's a grief in death to self. But you will be comforted by the Spirit of Jesus. Right? You will be meek, small, and insignificant. But you will inherit the earth as a co-heir with Christ. See Romans 8 for more on that. Right? You will hunger and thirst for righteousness. It's kind of a curse because the more you get to know Jesus, the more you see how things should be and then the more aware you are that things are not the way they should be, starting in your own heart. You will hunger and thirst for righteousness, and at times it will seem to be elusive. Yet, 
Christ will meet you and will satisfy you because you will find that all that, that, that righteousness that you hunger and thirst for is in him and he gives himself to you. You receive that in the body and the blood of Christ quite literally, really, every Sunday. As a disciple, you will experience the pain and unfairness of being merciful, right? Being merciful is not fair. It's, it's not giving something that they deserve, that somebody else deserves. So they might, they might deserve for you to be mad at them. They might deserve for you to withhold something from them. And when you're merciful, it's, it's going it's to hurt. But you will be assured in that moment that you're going to receive mercy from your Lord, your Rabbi Jesus, even when you don't deserve it, right? You will miss out on so much in this world to be truly pure in heart, which, which means to have kind of a single-minded focus, right? So, so to follow Jesus single-mindedly, you're going to miss out on, on a lot. You're going to miss out on a lot that everybody around you thinks is really important, but you're going to gain more than you can ever even imagine losing when you really see God for who he is in Jesus Christ. And you're going to place yourself at a lot of risk to be a peacemaker, getting in between people. But in so doing, you're going to witness to the character of God in Christ so faithfully who made peace by his blood on the cross that you will be known as his child, as his offspring. In other words, you're going to have that character. As a disciple, you're going to be persecuted. You're going to be made fun of. You're going to be rejected. Often by the people that you love most. Often by the people that you're trying to help. They're going to say, you're crazy for talking that way, thinking that way, behaving that way. Focusing so much on Jesus. But you will be accepted without reservation in the kingdom of your creator. I think this is the gospel. There are many people claiming to be preachers, teachers, prophets of the truth. Some Christians, some not. But listen, here's, here's a great way to just begin discerning that kind of stuff. The further their vision of victory gets from the cross, the less cruciform it, it, it looks, in other words. But what I mean by cruciform is cross-shaped. The further they are from Jesus. And thus, the further they are from the truth of God's holy word. In no way does Jesus win victory over sin by exerting superior might, by becoming popular, by gaining power or prestige or political clout, or by lamenting his lack of influence among the Romans, right? The way Jesus wins is by helping and healing one person at a time as he goes about his life, as he goes from place to place, and helping and healing even the ones that don't say thank you. You remember the 10 lepers? I mean, he heals them all. I'm sure he would love for all of them to come back and say thanks. But only one does, but it was worth it for him because of that one. Right? The way Jesus wins is refusing to accumulate material possessions and placing a higher value on spiritual family than even biological family. Right? The way Jesus wins is forgiving and blessing even the ones that nailed him to the cross. So we have to be on guard against false teaching, because there's a lot of it out there, that promotes essentially the ways of the world instead of the way of the cross. 
It's hard for a lot of us to make that discernment, myself included, because the fact is this. I think many of us, and looking out, I'm probably going to say almost everybody in this room has accepted Christ as Savior, right? I've accepted Christ as Savior. But something I struggle with, something I, I sometimes tend to do, is to keep him at arm's length as Lord and as teacher and even as friend. Because what do we do with our friends? They hang out, right? They hang out with our friends. And we see that we stiff arm Christ even as our friend in the way that we order our lives. So now we're just going to get really practical day to day. All right. Did you know that most adults in America spend about two hours on social media every day? That, I mean, I'm not saying all you guys do that, but I bet some of you do. I know I do. Okay, I've got a screen time app on my phone that I look at, you know, to my great chagrin and shame. Right? Um, that's two hours ingesting messaging and teaching in some form about the world and how we should live in it from sources that may or may not be Christian. And that's not even, you know, considering that that social media thing is separate from the time that adults spend on cable news like CNN or or Fox, which is about another two hours a week. Um, In contrast, a study from a few years ago found this, that only about 30% of evangelicals, they surveyed about 1,500 only about 30% of evangelicals set aside significant time for Bible reading and prayer every day. So everybody's on social media and cable news, but only about 30% are making time for the Lord. Um, among those that did, by the way, among that 30%, the average time spent was about 10 to 20 minutes. 10 to 20 minutes with the Lord two hours and 20 minutes with, you know, CNN and Fox and whoever your favorite Facebook pundit is. The fact is that so many of us are glad to accept Jesus as our Lord and Savior, but we don't really believe that being with him as our teacher through his written word and in prayer is really worth the time. So what would it look like for you, and go on this journey with me for a minute, what would it look like for you to take out your phone screen time app, look at that, see how much time you spend on social media and news, and just for a while, I'm not saying you got to do this all the time, but just for a while, reduce that number of time you spend on social media and news down to the level that you could spend twice that in prayer, devotion, and study every day. So if you're spending, say, an hour a day on Facebook, could you reduce that to half an hour so you could spend an hour with Jesus every day? Or could you spend half an hour reading the news every day? Um, Or if you do that, could you maybe reduce that to 15 minutes so you could spend 30 minutes with Jesus? Right? Now, this isn't meant to be some kind of legalistic requirement that I'm throwing on you guys or anything like that. Um, I'm just trying to help you kind of spark the imagination for what it could look like to spend your time in proportion with your proclaimed priorities 
as a disciple of Jesus. And, and look, and I get it. Like, a personal quiet time is not the only way to be with Jesus, okay? As Anglicans, we place a high value on encountering Jesus in our corporate worship and sacraments and fellowship and being with the poor, uh, acts of service, all that stuff. And yet, do you notice that in our corporate life together, the place of scripture and all of that? Like, have you noticed that our Sunday morning worship is essentially the, the word proclaimed by lectors and then proclaimed by the preacher and then proclaimed by the sacraments? and prayed by everybody. So, although there's lots of ways that we can be with Jesus, we really can't learn the the cross-shaped life apart from the testimony of Christ himself by the Spirit through saturation in the inspired scriptures. That's our our bedrock, our foundation. St. Paul himself said these things, which is the things he's been writing about, God is revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. So we we apply this to to the Bible, right? All these things in the Bible, testified about Jesus, God has revealed. We need it. We have to be saturated in it. So sisters and brothers, if we want to stay bright and salty and avoid bringing judgment on ourselves, honestly. I mean, that's why I'm preaching in this way. I mean, I know it's a little challenging today, but uh, I I wouldn't challenge you if I didn't love you. We have to cultivate the mind of Christ by cultivating biblical wisdom. We have to do it. We we must accept Jesus as our Savior, yes, and our Lord and teacher. And that means spending time with Him, especially in prayer and meditation on the Holy Scriptures, right? Right? prayer with the scriptures, prayer through the scriptures. Individually, absolutely. Every day. And corporately. Together. It's only then that we will be able to follow through with the kind of cruciform good works that really, truly declare the goodness and glory of God to each other and to the world. And so my prayer is that as we together purpose to only know Jesus Christ and Him crucified, that we will let the light of Christ in us shine before others so that they may see our good works and give glory to our Father who is in heaven. Amen.